Well, good morning again. We're glad you're here. I'm going to have us uh, just be aware that we have a food trucks available after the service today, and it's designed so that you and I can reconnect, all right? So, and if you have kids, there's some kids' events there that's all free. The food trucks are not free. Sorry about that, guys. I have no idea what the prices are, but um, the good news is uh, the cafeteria is going to open in September. All right. Yeah. So, yeah, it's great. And Sabine will be there. So that's great. Yeah, I'm excited. Also, I just want to encourage you to uh, join us. Um, sometimes when you're a pastor, a pastor's job many times is... It's a very great, it's a great vocation, it's a wonderful position, but it can be challenging. But I think the pastor's wife's job is harder. And uh, Patty is actually going to have a milestone birthday, and you know what, you're my family. So I'm inviting all of you to join us on August the 4th between 7 and 9, but I need a little favor from you. I need you to let our staff from the church know that you're coming, all right? So if you can do that before Wednesday, because I want to make sure I have enough food for you. So that's some, how many think that's good? Now, I'm not feeding you supper, but I am going to have refreshments for you. So if you'll tell me how many are coming, then I'll make sure I have the right amount of tables, right amount of chairs, right? And if you'd like to say a little something, somehow to celebrate uh, her life, or, you know, we've been in our church a long time. Some of you have known Patty for a long time. I think we probably have a few things to say about who she is. Uh, she's already ducking down, you know. She likes to tell me what she thinks, but I th- it'll be good to hear what you think of Patty uh, that Wednesday night. So you're invited. Uh, please let us know, okay? You're going to come. That's great. I'm going to have you stand this morning, and I'm going to share uh, just three verses as we go to the Lord in prayer. And as I was uh, preparing this message, and then this morning as I was, uh, you know, in my own prayer time, I was reading these verses from Psalm 25, It says here, beginning in verse 16, turn to me and be gracious to me. This is a prayer. God, turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. I'm going to talk about suffering today. I think it's important that God, that we know that God cares about us in our hour of loneliness, in our time of suffering. Relieve the troubles of my heart and free me from my anguish. And I was thinking to myself, you know, it's okay to pray, God deliver me from my sorrow, from my suffering. I don't think that's wrong. I think it's good. But we're going to talk about the value of it in our lives and why God even allows it. I look on my affliction and my distress and take away all my sins. Sometimes we suffer because of our folly. But then as you're going to hear today, sometimes we suffer when we've done the right thing. And, uh, and the temptation would be to stop doing the right thing, which I think we sh- need to keep doing the right thing, even though it may be difficult. So how many here today say, you know, Pastor, as you're talking about suffering today, there are things going on in my life. And I know there are things going on in our church family's life. I'm, I'm in dialogue with some people. And, you know, maybe you're going through a time of difficulty. Maybe it could be physical it could be relational, it could be emotional, it could be mental, it could be spiritual, it could be financial. You know, there's so many avenues in which challenges present themselves to us. Isn't that true? 
And so maybe you're here today. Maybe you yourself are going through this time or you're walking beside someone or know of someone you love that's going through this and you'd like prayer today. Let's just lift our hands to God and let's just bring all of these concerns to God. He does care about us and he cares about every situation we're experiencing. So Father, I thank you today that you're the God who suffers with us. You don't abandon us in our hour of need. You are all-powerful, you're all-knowing, you're gracious, you're kind, you're loving. And yet I, we're gonna see today that there's also reasons and things that can happen in our lives as we walk through this time. So now we're gonna pray, Lord, hear our cry. Relieve our anguish. Lord, minister to us in our point of brokenness and hurt in our lives. I pray that you'd bring healing in those places in our soul. And I pray that out of these experiences, that we will become stronger, more refined, more understanding, more compassionate, more empathetic, more loving than we've ever been before. And we thank you for that, Father, in Jesus' name and God's people said, amen. Amen, amen. you may be seated. So we're gonna continue our little journey here through 1 Peter, we're in chapter four, we're gonna finish that chapter. And I've entitled this sermon, No Crown Without a Cross. An interesting title, isn't it? And I believe that if we look at the life of Jesus, could you turn me down just a little bit there, Chris? If, if you look at the life of Jesus, what you're gonna realize is that Jesus suffered before he was exalted. How many know that there's a, there was a, a way to exaltation? There was a way to the throne, but Jesus had to go through a cross to get to the throne. And you and I are on the same path as Jesus. We are disciples. We are followers. We're on that same path. And before you and I experience God's crowns in our lives, the rewards, the blessing, the glory that we're going to receive in all of eternity, you and I are also going to experience moments when we are having a time of suffering, of sorrow, of loss. So there is no crown without a cross. Jesus said to us in Luke chapter 9, verse 23, then he said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple. Interesting, a disciple, what does it mean? A disciple is a follower. A disciple is a learner. If you want to be my disciple, he says, you must, it says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves. Interesting, it's not how much can I get, it's I have to let some things go. I have to lay down some things. He says, deny themselves and take up their cross daily. What's a cross? Well, a cross is something that, it's, it's a, an instrument of crucifixion. It's an instrument of death. It's an instrument that God wants to allow happening in our life so that some of the things in our lives that are unhealthy, you know, we could talk about the sinful nature. We can talk about maybe the wrong ambitions or the wrong desires. God wants to eradicate those things in our lives. He wants to remove them from our lives. So you and I literally have to die to our self-life, our self-centeredness, our selfishness. You know, it's not just about us. It, all of a sudden we get up and we say, you know what, Lord, I want to do your will today. I want to serve you and I, I serve other people. And, and Jesus goes on to say there, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it. Do you know, I've noticed in this world that when people just live for themselves, they are the most unhappy campers. It's all about them, and they are miserable, and they don't sense, a, no sense of real meaning and purpose and significance. But it says, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. There's a paradox. It's, 
It's an irony. How can I give up myself and actually discover who I am? But the Bible teaches that. It says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall be uh, the ones who inherit God's kingdom. It's the poor in spirit. You know, those that, you know, are needing comfort, God brings comfort to. Those that are weeping, God brings consolation to. We recognize God. It, it's kind of a, a totally different way of looking at life. And yet, it's amazing to me, the people who eventually get past themselves and, and begin to have a, a reason for living that's way beyond themselves, a, a bigger scope, all of a sudden find the joy and the delight in serving other people. And recognizing that as they're doing this, they're in reality serving God. Humility is actually the means to exaltation. In the Christian life, the way up is actually going down. It's humbling ourselves. It's a recognition that apart from God's grace or his gifts and dependence upon him will not run the race of life successfully. You know, I talked about prayer last week. What is prayer? Prayer is an acknowledgement I can't do it alone. Prayer is an, an admission that I need to be in communion with God. Prayer is an acknowledgement that, yes, God, you've blessed me with all these amazing things in my life, but I need to hook up with you to make sure that I'm using them in the right way. Isn't that true? God gifts every one of us in this room, and yet we've got to make sure I'm getting the direction straight. I'm utilizing these talents and energies in the right manner. When we embrace God's path, that it, we're going to discover there is actually significant obstacles that have to be overcome. Great trials and challenges attend the path of the follower of Christ. As a matter of fact, one of the great uh, literary uh, Bibles in the Christian realm is a book written by John Bunyan who wrote in the 17th century. He wrote an alleg allegory called Pilgrim's Progress. And in that allegory, he describes uh, in a very profound way the Christian life and all the challenges that you have to overcome in order to get to heaven. He calls it the celestial city. You have to get past Vanity Fair, which is, you know, getting past, you know, the, the glitz and glamour of what everything this world promises, but when you embrace it, you find out it leaves you with emptiness and sorrow and losses. We may even question sometimes as God's uh, children, if God is so good, why does he allow us, whom he loves so deeply, to undergo suffering? Anybody ever ask that question? You know, like, why does God let suffering happen in our world? I mean, if God is loving and God is good, why suffering? Anybody ever raise that question? That's been raised over and over again through the centuries. We're going to talk about that today. We're going to look at that tough question. You know, if you're an atheist, you don't have to worry about that question. You know, you say, why not? Because they don't believe. You know, that's it. They don't, they don't, but you know, but when you understand who God is, this becomes problematic. The question gets raised, you know. Good God, all-powerful God, why do, why do people suffer? I think that's a question that haunts many believers, too, especially when we're going through a time that's so difficult in our life. You know, some of the writers have called it the dark night of the soul, when we feel like God's a million miles away. I remember reading a little bit of C.S. Lewis, and he was, in his book, uh, A Grief Observed and the Loss of His Wife, he makes this statement. He said, do you know what, sometimes when, you're, when you're, everything is going good in life, it feels like God is very close. But he says, sometimes when you feel like you know, life is falling apart, like at the loss of his wife, you're grieving, you're suffering, you're sorrowing, and you're pounding the door of heaven, and you're wanting God to respond, it seems like God's a million miles away. But the question is, did God really move? And then later on, Lewis comes back and says, probably what's happening at that moment, we're, we're so 
filled with hurt and pain that we can't even notice the people around us, including God himself. As a matter of fact, when we study, you know, even study of religion, it's very fascinating, both Jews and Christians uh, believe in a God who understands the pain of humanity. As a matter of fact, we, we see it, that God says in the book of Isaiah that God suffers with us in our sufferings. He's identifying with us. As a matter of fact, God so identified with humanity's sufferings that he became a man and went through the things that we have experienced yet without sin. It says that, you know, Jesus was considered mad by his family. I don't know if you know that. He, he, he walked through moments where he was abandoned, rejected. He was despised. He was crucified unjustly treated, reviled, despite, you know, we could just keep going down all of the emotional aspects that you and I have experienced, Jesus understands that God is a suffering God and he suffers with us in our pain. But you know, it's really interesting that if we study scriptures carefully, we discover two words that seemingly are incongruent and yet they're always together. Glory and suffering. It's really interesting. As a matter of fact, 1 Peter here, we see that it's repeated several times in this letter that these believers that are suffering injustice and persecution, he now writes to encourage and comfort and explain there's, there's actually a purpose in their suffering. He begins by shattering the myth that we will never suffer. And you know, it's, it's really interesting that uh, somehow in, in North America, we've developed, I think, a false understanding of Christianity. We've leaned too far to one side. I believe it's far more balanced than that. I believe that there's two aspects of, of a truth that has two sides to it. And sometimes we tend to lean to one side and we neglect the other. And so today I'm going to focus on one side of it, but I'm not going to let you neglect the other. I'm going to mention it at least. I think we need to realize that suffering is a part of life. And we can try to stick our head in the sand, but Peter says, arm your mind, be prepared to suffer. As long as we live on planet Earth, there will be suffering. He's trying now to prepare the reader that they should not be surprised, nor consider it strange, nor be ashamed when they have to walk through a time of suffering. And that's true of us as well. He starts out in verse 12 here, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you. We're going to come back to that concept right there. As though something strange were happening to you. And so I think there's a, a number of reasons why people suffer. And Peter mentions distinct categories or reasons why people go through times of suffering. And I, I'm going to give you three of them today. Three reasons why people suffer. The first one is to reveal the glory of God. The first reason why we suffer fiery trials is as a test. Now how many remember in school? You really enjoyed those moments when the teacher says, okay, next Friday we're having a test. And then you'd hear this noise, kind of a groan, right? I mean, how many here you can honestly say you really enjoy tests? That's, you're, you just really get worked up for that. You're excited. Your pencil sharpens up. You're ready to go. Most of us go, you know, I'd rather not have that happen in my life. But why do we get tested by teachers, for example, in school? What, what's really going on there? Well, the idea is that they want to discover what you've learned. It's really simple. And you can't really learn that apart from somehow examining people. You can do it orally. You can do it written. However you do it. And, you know, one of the worst things in the world, I know, you know, we have teachers here, but, you know, most kids, what do they do before a test? They cram. And some of, how many here, you have to admit you were a crammer? That, that was your style. Okay, we've got honest people. Can I just tell you, all you crammers, bad way to do it. Okay, if you're young, listen to me. I've been a student for so long. Here's the best way. 
And I'll, I'll tell you how you do it. You pay attention every day in class. You're trying to learn. You know, you review, novel thought, Patty says. You review what you've learned, okay? So, you know, I'll, I'll tell you, I, I did pr relatively well in school, and I never got overwhelmed by tests because I paid attention every day, took notes, reviewed. And so when it came time to prepare for the test, I just reviewed my notes, went in, and I felt comfortable because, I, you know, I, I, was, I, had, I had a good idea what was going to be on that test, and I did all right. But the people that panicked were the people who weren't listening in class, didn't really study properly, didn't review, and so the test caught them off guard. Now, I'm going to just say this to all of us. Do you realize that God actually gives you examinations? You know, some of us go, what? And here's what I'm going to say. Actually, as we're living through this life, hopefully we're learning and growing and developing, but, you know, we have a test that comes along, and then we respond. In a test... You, you actually learn what you really have assimilated of the life of Jesus Christ into your life. You, you don't know, uh, if you don't spend time in the Bible and, it, and you all of a sudden are tested, most time the wheels come off in your life. You just like, you know, lose control, you're out of control, you're upset, you're frustrated, you're mad at God, you're mad at people, you know. It's not a good experience. And, but if you're a person that during the good times, you know, you're kind of a daily Bible reader, you're studying, you're praying, you're, you're, no, there's a consistency in your life. So when the test comes, guess what happens? You're ready for it. Something on the inside is strengthened, and so what's inside starts coming out. The test is only revealing to us what's going on inside. Can I just say COVID was a test? How'd you do? How'd you do? You know, some people had a hard time with it. Some people passed. Some people didn't do so well. Some people got upset. They were frustrated. They were angry, right? Some people were full of fear. Some people thought it would never end. Some people thought the world had come to an end. Some people still think the world's coming to an end. I talked about that last week. Talked about the way we should respond to that, which is true. Biblically speaking, the world's been coming to an end for the last 2,000 years. We should be responding in the right way. I could give you the test. What were the points if you were here? First thing we should do is what? Pray. Number two, love each other deeply, right? Number three, use your gifts. How many remembered those? Uh, somewhat, Pastor. Let me move on. He says, dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you. Earlier in the letter, Peter discusses the issue of the test of faith. He says it's part of a refining process in our life. In chapter 1 and verse 6, Peter says, In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. Now that tells me there's different kinds of trials. How many see that? All kinds of trials. You're suffering grief. You're suffering loss. You're suffering pain. It's difficult. It's sorrowful. It's frustrating. I can keep using adjectives, right? But you know what I'm talking about. Some of you are saying, I'm there, pastor. I can give you a few more adjectives, right? Then he goes on in verse seven. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith. See, what is he saying? The test comes to reveal what's inside your heart, which is of greater worth than gold, which perishes. See, gold's gonna eventually perish. Even though refined by fire may result in praise, glory, honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Now I want you to notice verse 6 talks about suffering. Verse 7 brings the idea of glory. These, these words are going to keep coming back throughout Peter's talk. Now, 
D.E. Johnson rightly remarks that their suffering was not a sign of God's absence, but of his purifying presence. I think sometimes we say when we're in the middle of a trial or a difficulty, where's God in all this mess, right? Now, I think that's a different question is how long is this going to last? I, you know, the psalmist says that question, how long, O Lord, how long? Book of Revelation, the same people say, how long, O God, are you going to not vindicate our deaths because we were killed unjustly? So there's a lot of questions the Bible is raising. But here we're seeing, uh, in this, this context is really a context of persecution. They're, they're suffering for the right reasons. They're suffering because they're followers of Christ. They're suffering because they're, you know, people consider their behavior different. How many know people feel threatened and insecure around people who are secure and maybe don't walk by the same drumbeat? People feel threatened by that, right? It's the way it works. So all of a sudden, you're not behaving in a way that everybody else thinks you ought to behave. They're threatened by that. They're going to they're gonna treat you differently. And, you know, we could talk about socially distancing, not, you know, not the, the COVID kind, but I mean the emotional abandonment, turning their back, walking away from, not having anything to do with you because... They don't agree with where you're coming from. They just cut you off. I'm amazed today. When people don't agree now, they just cut you off. How many notice that? <clears throat> we, we, we've lost an ability to actually be able to dialogue with people that disagree. We're losing that ability somehow. We just cut people off. It's really, I think it's tragic. And you know what happens? We, we actually are the losers to have everybody that we hang with think exactly like we think. I think it's healthy sometimes to have people that have a, a, a broader range of thought. And in the Christian church, it's going to shock you, on the essentials, we need to be in agreement. But there's a lot of things that aren't essential in the Christian faith that we can all have different viewpoints on. And I think we should learn from these different viewpoints and learn from one another. Uh, Howard Marshall says, only suffering directly associated with opposition to Christ brings glory to God. Uh, at least that's true in this text. I think one of the hardest things in life is to suffer for doing the right thing. Anybody ever suffer for doing? I mean, we can understand suffering for doing the wrong thing, but to suffer for doing the right thing, that's a bitter pill to swallow. Anybody suffer injustice? Anybody been treated poorly after doing the right thing? That's kind of a tough thing, isn't it? That's hard to handle. And yet I want to just encourage you. That's happened over and over again. Read the Bible carefully. Here's a guy by the name of Naboth. You go, who's he? Well, he's a guy that owned a vineyard, just happened to back up to the palace where King Ahab, this wicked king, lived, and he wanted that vineyard. So he went over to Naboth and said, hey, sell me the vineyard. He goes, listen, this is my inheritance from God. I'm not selling it to you. Now, Naboth goes off in a little temper tantrum. He's pouting. His, his wife, Jezebel, anybody heard of the name Jezebel? Well, she's in the story. She's quite, kind of a vile personality. She goes, don't worry about it. I'll get you the vineyard. She goes out and writes a letter to the townspeople and says, hey, listen, we want to get rid of this guy. So send a couple of people, falsely accuse him of some bad stuff, and then we'll take him to court and sentence him to death. And that's exactly what happened. He got executed. How many go, that's a nasty kind of piece of work? Isn't that amazing you read these stories in the Bible? This isn't just a story. This actually happened to this poor man. Hey, I want to just give you the good news. Naboth is doing okay. He's actually in the presence of the living God, and God has vindicated him over and over again. I read the story, and I go, boy, I don't want to be where Ahab and Jezebel are today. Anybody following that? 
they're in big time trouble because they did the wrong thing. Naboth did what was right. Or think about uh, David, you know, who's fleeing from his life, for, for his life because King Saul is insecure and jealous of him. Or, you know, think about Stephen who's preaching the gospel and, you know, he's, he's, the glory of God is upon this guy and these religious leaders are so angry with him that they scream he's committed blasphemy and they start, you know, they kill him with rocks called stoning. Not a nice way to die, but he, you know, so I'm just pointing out to you, there's a lot of people who have suffered terrible things when people are trying to do the right thing. So I'm, I'm, here's, here's lesson number one you should walk away from. Sometimes we suffer when we do the right thing. Okay, you need to keep that in your mind. Sometimes suffering comes when we're doing the right thing. Why is that important to know? Because a lot of times we go, what am I doing wrong? You ever ask yourself that question, why am I suffering? I must have done something wrong. The answer is you may not have done anything wrong. You could be doing everything right, and that's why you're suffering. So suffering doesn't just come by doing the wrong thing. Sometimes suffering comes because you're doing the right thing. Now, um, oh, this is, this is interesting. How many realize that uh, one of the reasons why... Uh, God allows suffering to happen in our lives as he's trying to develop something inside of us. And he uses suffering as a tool. Now you think about an oyster for a minute. What happens when sand gets caught inside of an oyster? A pearl emerges, you know? So I remember reading this years ago. Imitation is the highest form of flattery. Now you think about pearls for a minute. There's a lot of fake pearls out there, right? And they're cheap. But you've tried buying, you know, a necklace of real pearls. You're going to pay a lot more. Why is that? Because they're of greater value. Because they're, you know, it takes, you got to, it's hard to get them, first of all. And then it takes work for them to develop. Like, you know, the oyster having, you know, this irritation of sand in his life. You know, it, it's actually the perseverance of an irritating grain of sand. Now, I want you to think about this for a minute. Are there any irritations in your life right now? Anybody have any irritations in your life? How many here, you have irritations in your life? Raise your hand. You've got irritations in your life. Just say to yourself, God is creating a pearl. God is creating a pearl inside of my soul. You know, a lot of times, what do we want to do with irritations? What do we want to do with them? Get rid of them. God says, no, I want them. I want them in your life. So some of you go, I can't understand why God's allowing this irritation in my life. God goes, I'm working on you. I'm creating something inside of you. I'm developing perseverance. I'm developing some elements of the quality and the character of the life of Christ. Similarly, in God's plan, the irritating sand of trouble shapes the beautiful pearl of endurance in our character. So number one, God is going to allow trials in our life because he wants to develop something. It's a test. He wants that to happen. Number two, here's the right response to suffering. I know this is going to sound really crazy to you. I knew this was going to push a couple panic buttons inside of people. This is, the, this is the right way to respond to suffering, rejoicing. You're going, Pastor, you've got to be kidding me. You know, I'm not saying that you rejoice because of the, tr because of the nature of the trouble. I want you to learn, and I need to learn, to rejoice regardless of the trouble. You see, David said, I will bless the Lord at all times. Well, what about when you're running from Saul and your life is on the line? He was rejoicing. 
Isn't that amazing? How many think that's kind of amazing that we could actually do that? Listen to what Peter says here in verse 13. But rejoice inasmuch as you are participant in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. I don't believe this is the normal human response to problems. You know, something happened and you go, oh Lord, I just want to thank you for this. You know, most of us are walking around upset. Come on, some of us get discouraged, some of us get mad, irritated, all these emotions. How many say, you know, when a problem comes my way, first thing on my list is, oh Lord, thank you, thank you, thank you. You know, you're laughing because you're going, that's not how human beings normally respond. But when you do that, how many say that would be a supernatural response? That would be somebody who's really letting the life of Christ rule and reign in their life. Think of Job. He lost you know, his family. What's he do? He gets down and he worships God. He says, Lord, you, you gave these children to me. Now you've taken them back to you. I'm going to still worship you. That's a very interesting response. Most people don't respond that way. That's been my experience with people. And yet, we're told to rejoice. Now, think about the Apostle Paul. Listen to what he writes here in Philippians chapter four. He says, rejoice in the Lord. He's not saying rejoice in the problem, not rejoice for the problem. He's just saying, rejoice in the Lord always. And I'll say it again, rejoice. Now, I want you to think back to the people he's writing to. He's writing to a group of people in a city, a Roman colony called Philippi. When Paul went to Philippi initially, and there was no believers there, there wasn't even a synagogue, there wasn't even 10 Jewish men in that community, he found that there was a prayer meeting by the river. And he went down to the prayer meeting and he preached the gospel of Jesus. And the Bible said, he, the heart of Lydia was opened. God opened the heart of Lydia. She heard the good news that Jesus died for her. She responded to it. She became a follower of Christ. Really, a very wealthy woman. She was a businesswoman from the city of Tyatira, which was actually in Asia Minor. That's present-day Turkey. Philippi is in present-day Greece. And she was a very uh, wealthy businesswoman. Her heart opened up. God revealed himself to her. She became a follower of Christ. She was the first follower of Jesus in the city of Philippi. It was a woman. Okay, the next, we read the next convert is an amazing story. It's a little girl who had been captive, taking capture, and she had a unique ability to tell fortunes. As a matter of fact, she was walking around following Paul and Silas, these two missionaries, and saying, listen to these men, they're telling you the right way to God. Now, Paul was upset about that because he recognized why this little girl knew what was going on. Because, you see, she was actually demonized. There was a demonic spirit recognizing <clears throat> that this was the gospel, the message of God. And so she was identifying, or there was an identification, so people might get a little bit confused as to this, you know, what's going on with this messaging. So Paul was getting so grieved, he turned around to her one day, he says, in the name of Jesus, get out of her, the spirit. Immediately, she was set free from this demonic spirit, totally in her right mind. She became a follower of Jesus. Guess what happens? The people that owned her were really upset. And why was that? Because she couldn't tell fortunes anymore. She didn't have that spiritual connection with the underworld that knew what was kind of going on in certain people's lives, you know, these familiar spirits. So all of a sudden, their business, you know, ability to earn income went down to zero with that young girl. They got so angry at Paul and Silas, they took him before the courts and accused him of all kinds of things. And you know, sometimes you can get people worked up. They got these guys so worked up that Paul and Silas got beat up. 
And then we pick up the story in Acts chapter 16. So we're going to find out who the third person is into this church. And here it comes the story in Acts 16. And so after they had been, this is Paul and Silas, had been severely flogged. Notice the adjective. Which is what word? What's this adjective? Severely. Now, I don't know about you, being flogged would be painful, but these guys were severely flogged. That tells me they were beat up pretty bad. They were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. In other words, these guys are dangerous. Don't let them out of your sight. It says there, when he had received these orders, he put them in the inner cell. Make sure these guys don't get away, right? And he fastened their feet into the stocks. So they were chained to the wall or something. They were chained. Then we read, you think that after this, Paul and Silas would have said, you know, this, this business of preaching in the gospel is way too hard. You know, it, it's, it's painful, and not everybody appreciates it. We've had very little success in Philippi. No, you know what it says? At midnight, Paul and Silas, what are they doing? They couldn't sleep. They were probably in so much pain, so they decide to pray and sing praises, hymns to God. Now, in the middle of their suffering, they're singing praises to God. What's happening is everybody around them seeing what's going on, they're listening to them. So how, do a, how does a person sing praises in the midst of suffering? Do you know if you do that, people will pay attention to you? How many believe that's true? If you are able to rejoice in a time of difficulty, people want to know what's inside of you, what's making you do this. They had people's attention. Maybe people don't listen to us because when we get a little problem, we whine and carry on and complain. Everybody does that. Why do I want to hear about that? But you know, if you could actually rejoice to God in spite of what's happening to you, people are going, what's making you tick? Now, what was so beautiful about this is God intervened. Now, I'm going to use a little metaphor here because physically this is what happened. There was an earthquake. The cell's doors popped open and the chains that had them shackled were released. But I could just say this. If you and I will start learning how to praise God, I believe some of the chains of our soul will be popped off and some of the imprisonment in our spirit will be, the doors will be open. We'll be able to be free from living with a bunch of bitterness and anger and frustration in our life. We'll be able to have joy. Paul and Silas were full of joy. The jailer was going to commit suicide. He was so distraught because he felt like, you know, in that day, if your prisoners escaped, they'd execute the jailer. He thought they were gone. He thought he was dead. He, it was so much shame involved in that, he thought he'd just execute himself. Paul and Silas says, no one's left. We're here. And the man ran in and said, okay, what should I do to become a Christian? And he said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and your whole house will be saved. Immediately, the man who had beat Paul and Silas up went out and got a water and some cloth and began to you know, put, you know, wash off where he had beaten them and began to attend to their needs. How many think that's an amazing story? You see, when you and I learn how to handle our suffering and our sorrow correctly, God can make much good come from those situations. Well, let me move on. Suffering is actually one of the means to get us to know Jesus. You say, what do you mean? Let's go back to that verse again, verse 13. It says there, um, but rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the suffering of Christ. Now, Paul later on says this at the same church in Philippi. Can you imagine? He had to be consistent. He said, listen, I know what it is to you know, rejoice in suffering. They go, yeah, we know. That's how our church started. Then he says this to them. 
I want to know Christ. Hey, Paul, didn't you know Christ? Of course he knew Christ. What he's saying is I want to experience him at a deeper level. I want to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. So now I want to just explain to you there's two sides to the element of Christianity. A lot of times we emphasize one, especially in North America. A lot of us love the power of his resurrection. We, we like that side. Don't, don't you? I love that side, you know? Because when we talk about the power of his resurrection, what we're really talking about here is the power of a new life and the experiences of amazing spiritual victories with incredible miracles and healings. Uh, but on the other side of the same coin is that we also walk through the losses and the pain and the suffering and the betrayal and the rejection and the abuse that Jesus went through. What am I saying? I'm saying there's two sides to Christian faith. There's the side where you and I experience God's power in, in our lives, and then there's the side where we experience God's suffering, and we begin to identify with God's suffering. And then Peter goes on to say here, if you um, are insulted because of the name of Jesus, you are blessed for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. To be insulted publicly, uh, sorry, then he says, however, if you suffer as a Christian, don't be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. So, you know, a lot of us, we don't get this, this shame thing, but it, in a shame-honor culture, you really understand it. And this is what he's talking about. He's saying, don't, you know, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And I think sometimes as Christians, we become ashamed of the gospel and we don't identify with it and everything that it's, we, we, it's the Christianity stands for. We're, we we want to just duck and hide sometimes because we're being criticized by something. Well, yeah, you know what? If people are abusing people, yeah, that's wrong. We all know that. That's not even Christian. As a matter of fact, we should never be doing that. Actually, the opposite should be happening. If people are abusing us, we should never retaliate in like fashion. I already talked about that one week. We should be living a life of blessing. But here, to be insulted publicly is by normal reckoning a source of misery. But Peter echoes Jesus and says that on the contrary, appearances can be deceptive. In fact, he said, you're blessed. You know, isn't that interesting? You're blessed when people speak evil of you for the right reason. That's what he's saying. And I think so often in the Christian life, you know, we get, when we're doing the right thing and we're getting persecuted, what do we want to do? Quit doing the right thing because we don't want the pain. And what we're going to discover is these guys kept doing that. But let me move on here to the second reason why people suffer. It's a result of personal sinful behavior. And we know that there's consequences for doing the wrong thing. You know, and sometimes we don't always see the judicial system, maybe the justice in our society work. But I want to let you know that there is justice. It may not all happen when you see it. And it may happen differently than you think. Sometimes God shows grace and mercy to people. But eventually, if we keep doing the wrong things, we're going to suffer for it emotionally, mentally, spiritually, psychologically, physically, relationally, financially. I could just keep going down the list. It's going to impact our, affect our life. So Peter says it this way. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or a thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. Now, how many know we can understand, oh, yeah, we shouldn't be a murderer or a thief or any other kind of involved in criminal activity. Christians shouldn't be involved in that. But look at this last part, even as a meddler. Why would he say that? Well, I think he's trying to point out we should not be drawing undue attention to ourselves needlessly and stirring up resentment and hostility against us. 
That's what he's trying to explain to us. I like what Karen Jobes writes. She says, the prohibition against meddling accords well with Peter's teaching elsewhere that Greco-Roman social roles and boundaries are to be respected, though not to the point of denying Christ. Now, what, she, what is she really saying? She's saying simply this. When you're looking through 1 Peter, what are some of the things that we've run across? Well, Peter talks about laying aside your rights. How many figured that out? He said, you know, wives, submit to your husbands. You know, Christians, you need to submit to those that are governing over you. How many know that sometimes we resist those things? We don't like what's being told. Now, I understand it if someone's asking us to do something illegal or immoral, but when somebody's in a position of authority is asking you to do something that's right and we don't do it, we're wrong. That's what she's saying. And she's basically arguing that we shouldn't be doing that. And I agree with her. Peter wants his readers to avoid attracting hostility, if at all possible, without renouncing their faith in Christ. He goes on to elaborate that God is a God of justice. So how many here sometimes you get frustrated by the injustices in our society? Anybody get frustrated by that? Well, of course, yeah, and rightfully so. Rightfully so. I think we're wired like God. We're created in his image. We think, hey, what's right is right, right? And when somebody does something wrong and they're not being addressed, that's not a healthy thing for them or for society. And yet in our culture today, I think we have a wrong understanding of mercy anyways. We, we, don't, we, we think we're helping people sometimes. Many times we're damaging people by letting people off the hook without any measure of consequence. But let me move on and say this. Peter says, for it is time for judgment to begin with God's household. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? In other words, he says, God's going to address everybody. God's justice is going to be addressing us all. And if it's hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Well, it's a very good question. Now, let me just say something to all of us. Well, let me, let me quote this, and then I'll say this. Uh, Wayne Gruden says this regarding this text. Yet this word for judgment, krima, that's the uh, Greek word there, does not necessarily mean condemnation, which would be katakrima, but it is a broader term which can refer to a judgment which results in good or bad evaluation, a judgment may, which may issue an approval or discipline as well as condemnation. I'm going to say something that's going to, I think we need to hear as Christians. Just because Jesus forgives our sins, it doesn't mean that God will never judge us for our, our wrong behavior. We've got to stop thinking that way. As a matter of fact, I would argue definitively against that position because when I read 1 Corinthians, Paul tells them to judge a person in the church who has sinned and to actually excommunicate them from fellowship. That's pretty strong language. Now, why would he do that? Because he says a little leaven leavens the whole lump. And when you, you and I rejoice over allowing sin to dominate in people's lives, it's going to destroy them. That's why. It's destructive. Sin is a destructive thing in all of our lives. And especially when it becomes a flagrant kind of sin and everybody knows what's going on and nothing is being said or done about it. All right. We're all going to stand before God one day. And even as Christians, even though God's forgiven us of our sins and we're going to have eternal life, do you realize that you and I are going to be judged based on what we did good and what we did bad? And that word bad there in Romans, and I've quoted this before and I've said it before, but I need to repeat it. Chapter 5, verse 10 is simply this. That bad means without value. So there's a lot of things in our lives that are good, we do that are, have real value, and there's a lot of things in our lives that have no value as a Christian. 
And unfortunately, some people live a life and there's very little value to their life. They're, they're living for themselves and, and therefore, they're not really doing a lot to, you know, to help other people. <clears throat> That's not a good place to be. And so some people will get into heaven and there's a reward system. Believe it or not, it's there. I read the Bible. And it says some people are gonna be highly rewarded and blessed by God and other people are gonna get in by the skin of their teeth. How's that? And they're not gonna be highly rewarded. And I think it'll be a kind of a sad day because I th we need to understand that God is evaluating our lives right now. So we can get very indifferent and apathetic, but it's gonna create a lot of difficulties in our lives. It's interesting what uh, Thomas Schreiner says here. I'm gonna skip over a little bit here. He says, unbelievers here are described as those who do not obey the gospel of God. Now, it's interesting. Peter could have actually written about judgment falling on those who disbelieve the gospel. But here he wanted to focus on the failure to obey, for all unbelief leads to disobedience. Why does he, why does he say it this way? And I, I agree with him. I think this is an important point. You know, it's interesting that we can make assent to God. We can say, yeah, I believe in God, okay? That's belief. Well, I could say, yeah, James says it. Oh, the devil believes in God. It doesn't affect anything in his life. It's just a mental assent. He knows the knowledge of it. True faith acts on what they believe. And so if you really believe in God, it should move you to action. That's what he's saying. So when you're obeying, when you're obeying God, when you really believe, you will obey God. When you don't believe, you don't do what he's asking you to do. That's what he's getting at here, and I think that's important that we hear that. Let me move on to the final reason why people suffer, and it's we suffer according to the will of God. In 1 Peter 4.19 it says, so then those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to a faithful creator and continue to do good. This is the challenge. You know when you're suffering for doing the right thing? The temptation is to do what? Stop, because you don't want the suffering. Anybody ever been tempted? Anybody ever get discouraged? You're doing the right thing, but you don't see any results. You're doing the right thing, and maybe you're even seeing bad results. But you know you're doing the right thing. It's the right thing to do, but you're suffering for it. I love what he says here. What you have to do at that moment is say, okay, God, you see what I'm doing, even though I'm suffering for it, even though maybe I'm being misunderstood, I'm doing what you've asked me to do, I'm doing the right thing here, even though it's costing me something. You know, two thoughts come to mind from this text. The first is that we are to imitate Jesus who suffered for doing the right thing. How many know Jesus suffered for doing the right thing? And how did Jesus handle that? It says when they hurled insults at him, he didn't retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. You know what the great temptation is when people are hurting us? What's the great temptation? Hurt them back. You know what we should be doing? Don't do that. We should be saying, okay, God, you see the pain they're causing me? I'm turning them over to you. I'm gonna pray for your blessing in their life because you know what? They're your child, you deal with them. I'm just gonna love them. I'm gonna let you deal with them. That's hard to do, isn't it? That takes God's spirit working inside of us to do that. The second thing I notice, and I think it's powerful, is that we want to withdraw from doing the good thing. And I want to just point out to you, Peter knew about this. Because when he was, he was also flogged for preaching the gospel. 
And they ordered him not to speak in the name of Jesus, and they let them go. This is Peter and John before the Sanhedrin. And then it says, and the apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing. Hey, what's Peter doing? He's rejoicing. What's Peter telling us to do in his letter? Rejoice. How many say Paul and Peter are consistent with their messaging? What they tell us to do, they themselves model for us. How many think that's powerful? They're saying, guys, this really works. Matter of fact, Jesus told Peter, it says when people persecute you, rejoice. That's the way they treated every, every prophet. If you're doing the right thing, you're gonna suffer at times. It says, they were rejoicing because they felt counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching. They didn't quit. They kept doing it. Aren't you glad they did that? Yeah, because Christianity began to spread all over the world because these guys were obedient and did what was right. Now, I want to just close with a couple of thoughts here. First of all, Romans 8.28. You know, I think we, we need to understand this beautiful verse in its context. Romans 8.28. How many actually know the verse I'm, I'm alluding to right now? You actually maybe even have it memorized. Isn't that a great verse? Let me remind you, for those that don't know addresses, you'll know the verse. And we know that in all things, God works for the good to those who love him. How many like that? And we know that in all things, good and bad, God is going to work for good in our lives. Okay, how many find, I find solace and refuge in that verse. I love that verse. I can camp there. I like that. Because no matter what happens, I know God's going to use this for good. Okay, I love that. What's the context of that verse? That's found in Romans chapter 8. It's found in the context of suffering. That's what you need to understand. That verse is in the middle of, you know, the whole creation is groaning under the weight of sin. You know, our bodies are still waiting for their ultimate redemption. We're going to get a new body. He goes on to say here in Romans 8.35, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? How many sound like those are difficult things? Those are not happy moments. Those are suffering moments, right? He says, as it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered the sheep to be slaughtered. Knowing all of these things, what things? I put a little bracket in my notes. The things we suffer. And all of the things we're suffering, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Now let me conclude. I'm just going to quote uh, R.C. Sproul. He said, the God who has redeemed us and counts our soul more valuable than gold. And as gold is refined in the fire, so are we refined. Though we suffer for a moment, the goal of God in our suffering is our redemption, not our destruction. We suffer because he suffered, and he asked us to join him in that. His suffering is redemptive. Ours is not, but in our suffering, we bear witness to the glory of his. So what are some of the things that we, I can walk away from here today? Let's stand. I want to just share this thought with you. Number one, first of all, let's destroy the myth that suffering is not, import, is not a part of life. How many here could say, Pastor, we get it. Suffering is a part of life. Anybody here ever suffered? Okay, so we all get that. Number two, you know, suffering, we cannot say, because I'm a Christian, I shall never suffer. That's not even biblical. I would argue, no, 
suffering, if God allows suffering to come into my life, I have to have the right attitude. I can now, I'm participating in the fellowship of his suffering. I'm now understanding what Jesus experienced. I'm going into a new depth in my relationship with God. Okay. You know, we all know we're going to, you know, one day be resurrected. That's great. But before we get there, there's suffering. Remember years ago, one of my doctrine teachers said, you know, one of the reasons why some people maybe have to suffer at the end of their life is because they want to hang on to this old world. They don't want to let go. They want to stay. And you know, when you suffer enough, eventually you'll say, you know what, I'm prepared to go now. I'm serious. You'll be ready to go. Because what's ahead of us is actually better than what we're in right now. But you know why we have a hard time letting go? Because it's the unknown in our mind. And yet we have glimpses of it. The Bible reveals things to us. It's there before us. You know, when I study, when I study even the created world, when I study what's going on around, I just go, there is a God, folks. You know, this is not all by chance. It's just, there's just too much uh, powerful things in our world to show that there had to be some sort of a designer in this world. We're moving towards eternity. God designed us for a purpose. I love that. We're not an accident. Every human being, just think about this, seven billion people, we all have a different fingerprint. There's no carbon copies with God. Is that amazing? Every person is unique. God has a purpose for every life. God puts different gifts, I talked about that last week, in every one of our lives. This is all so meaningful to me. I just get so excited about it. And then I think, you know what, life is so brief and we're moving so quickly towards eternity. And yes, there's suffering in this life, but Paul says, I count these things as light afflictions compared to the eternal glory that awaits me. How powerful is that? And maybe you're here today and you're saying, man, I've just got so much going on in my life right now. I feel like my, the wheels are falling off. There's so much pain and sorrow in my life right now. I'm going to challenge you to do something abnormal and supernatural. I'm going to have you focus up towards God and say, you know what? I'm going to still rejoice in you. I'm going to still rejoice in you. And what's going to happen is there's going to be a joy start flooding your heart that's going to allow you to escape the brokenness that you're walking in right now. You'll, you'll still feel pain. You'll still feel some measure of sorrow. You'll still have tears. But God's gonna lighten that load because there's gonna be a joy that's lifting you up. God's presence is there. So I'm gonna challenge you. Begin to rejoice in the Lord. Okay, number one. Number two, I want you to see something. This is a test. God is with me. He's not left me, he's not forsaken me. He's with me in this time of sorrow. He's walking right beside me. I want you to see that right now. He's there. And not only that, he's gonna take you through. It's gonna to come to an end. And eventually, you and I will be with him. And we're gonna say, you know, when I look back, I can, I can say this, I'm a little older now, I can look back and I can say, some of the most difficult times in my Christian journey, when I was wondering what in the world God is doing, has God abandoned me? You know, when I felt like I was just barely putting one foot in front of the other, and I felt like I was just going through the motions, the pain maybe was great. I'll tell you what happened. Later on when I came through that season, and when I looked back, I said, you know what? God 
did such a profound work in my soul, he changed me. You see, God wants to change every one of our lives and make us more like him. And the work is from the inside out. And the only way to do it is put enough pressure on our lives, just like he does with that oyster. He allows that grain of sand to slip inside of your soul and begin to irritate you like crazy. And you're so frustrated and you're praying, God, deliver me from the sand. God, deliver me from the sand. God's going, nope. You're going, you must hate me, God. God goes, no, I love you. I'm creating a pearl of endurance in your soul. I'm refashioning the character in your soul. I'm making you more like Christ. And so maybe you're here today and you're saying, you know, Pastor, there's so much sorrow in my life right now, but I want to open my heart. I believe God brought me here today just for this trip, just, just this message. God's speaking into lives. I believe that. And you're listening to this. God's saying, listen, I have a plan and purpose in all of this. So just with every head bowed, how many here say, you know what? I am right there, Pastor. I am right with you. I am suffering right now. I'm going through this time. And I want to pray for you in this season and help you to understand that you have not been forsaken, my friend. You have not been abandoned in this moment. God deeply cares about you, so much so that he's doing a work of grace in your life. So Father, I pray today that you would strengthen, you would encourage, that you would reveal yourself, that we would come to know you in a more profound way, that we would recognize that there's not an absence of suffering in this world. There will be one day when we're with you, but there's not an absence right now. But we've prepared our mind. Help us not to suffer because we're doing the wrong things. But if we're suffering today, Lord, may it be for the right reasons. And Lord, may we be growing and deepening in our relationship with you. We thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you as you leave.